That song's been around for a while, but it's, a, it's got some hang time to it. It's a, it's a good one. And I, I love that, that line in there. And the cry of my heart you know, is to bring you praise. No one else, just, just bring you praise. Now, you may want to get in on this. Apparently, there, there's a, a pool going on to see how far I get in my message before I trip over all these new wires that are up here. So I, 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 it, the eyes are not looking too good for me, so we'll see. I, I fall down without wires. So. But anyhow, welcome to week four of our message series, God's Blueprint for the Family. And the premise for this series is that marriage and family are God's idea, and that God has given us a blueprint in his word for marriage and for the family. And how they're supposed to work. Now, the premise is that God created and designed that, that God is the author and perfecter of both family and of marriage. And that God is always ready, willing, and more than able to take our marriage and our family, no matter where they are, to the next level for him and in him and through him. Now, understand, when we, when we lift up our eyes to the hills, we see that help for a family, help for a marriage, comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. I got to tell you, it's been, a, it's been a great series so far. Listen, following God's blueprint, following God's blueprint, following God's blueprint will make a difference in our families. I, I understand it. If we, if we put into our families, into our marriage, the, the building material we talked about back on March 9th, just four weeks ago, if we make sure that the, these building materials are, are in our family and in our marriage, you know, that they're there and they're growing, if we make sure that, that we have plenty of acceptance in our relationships at home, plenty of attention, plenty of adjustment, you know, that idea of mutual submission, what can I do to help? If we make sure that there's, that there's plenty of appreciation and encouragement and, and affection and amnesty, if they are there and we, we use those materials, it will, not might, not could or should, it will make a huge difference in our homes. Question, do you believe this? That was powerful. <laughs> Let me hold on this time. I'll get knocked down by all the enthusiasm out there. Seriously. <laughs> uh, uh, Jesus said, I'm glad you believe this for the two of you out there. <laughs> Just teasing. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Right? And listen, here's the deal. If, if those of, of us in this room who are married, if we would commit to God's design for marriage, what we've been talking about the last two weeks, if we will commit and, and recommit to God's, permanent, uh, God's purpose for marriage, to the permanence of marriage, to the priority of marriage, to the purity of our marriage, and to the properly positioning of our marriage, you know, with God as the foundation, God as the center, and you, with God as the source of our love income, so we actually have something in our wallet to give out to other people, again, it will, not might. It will, because it's God's word. It, it will make a difference in our homes, in our marriages. And if you miss any of these messages the last few weeks in marriage, I, I encourage you to check it out. Jesus said, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is what? Is wise. 
Y'all killing me today. <laughs> like a person, it's all good. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents, hey, and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it's tough in this world, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching, fills out their outlines, nods their head, say amen, and doesn't obey, is what? Is foolish. Say, who said we couldn't learn, right? Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come, and they're coming, and hard times and difficulties and challenges will beat against your marriage, will beat against your home, and it will collapse with a mighty crash. Now, let's pray. And with palms open, symbolic that we're ready to receive from the Lord. Uh, God, we love you. And, and God, thank you for your patience with us. God, because we sure know a whole lot more truth than we apply, uh, myself included. And God, I, I, I pray that the words you speak, God, that we will not just nod our head and, and agree with, God, but that we will make them part of our lives, that we will make them part of how we build our lives, build our homes, build our families. God, I pray that you will speak boldly and clearly today through me. God, help me to say what you want me to say in the exact way that you want me to say it. God, may you be glorified in this place. May you be lifted up. May hope flow in this place because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, our conversation is about singleness and finding our soulmate. Now, now why a conversation about singleness in a series about family? Well, because every family probably has single people in them, right? Anybody have any single people in your family? Sure you do. And every, and every family started with a single person looking for somebody to marry, right? You know? and, and, and the process they use determined who they chose, which is the reason why they are where they are today. Does that make sense? Okay? And, and so today we all can listen, right? Right? Raise your hand if you know anybody that's single, okay? All right, so no one has permission to check out, right? The temptation is, hey, I can check out, but we, we can't. Check out some of these statistics about being single in America, okay? There are over 100 million unmarried adults in the USA over the age of 18. 61% have never been married. 24% are divorced. 15% are widowed. In 1950, 4 million people lived alone, 9% of all households. Today, 31 million live alone, 28% of all households. And, and here's a couple of graphs that I like. Uh, I like pictures. Uh, a current marital status from 1960 to 2010. You can see in 1960, 72% of all adults were, were married. Now we're at 51. You know, uh, we have 28% have never been married, and, uh, and 6% are widowed, and 14% are divorced. So basically... You know, half of all adults in our country are not married. And that's why talking about singleness is important. And, and check out this next graph. Uh, of those who aren't married, 61% want to be married. 12% uh, said, no way, I don't want to be married. And 27%, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure. And if we say, hey, we say, well, half of those not sure want to be married, we could come up with a number like 75%. You know, of all adults, which is 75 million people in our country, are wanting to get married. 
That's why what we're talking about is important, because we know people who are single, and we know single people who would like to get married. Now, the way I, I want to uh, attack our topic today is, is first, I, I, I want to talk about singleness and what the New Testament has to say about it. You know that, that blueprint thing? And listen, my goal, just like the last two weeks, I said, hey, we need to rethink marriage because we think wrong about marriage. My goal today is, you know what, I think we also need to rethink singleness because I don't think we see singleness from the viewpoint that Scripture does. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. Um, singleness, some things about it. Number one, in your notes, singleness can be, can be hard. I, I made the following post on my um, Facebook this past Thursday. You know, what are a few of the things that you found particularly difficult about being single? Here are some of the comments. Uh, Suzanne Davis, uh, the advice from married people, or rather the assumption that I can only be happy if I have the house, the husband, and the 2.5 kids. Uh, Nathan Bryant, he's, a, he's a, a, a junior or senior at Ozark Christian College. I met him when I was in Florida at our church. Uh, there's just a stigma that the only way to be truly happy is to be married. There's always well-meaning people trying to set us up. When all we really want is just acceptance into a larger family. Jason Vance, I knew him you know, a long time ago in Georgia. He's probably in his mid to late 30s. Uh, being lonely, I'm getting older. Who can I seriously say I want to spend the rest of my life with? How do I know? Uh, Lisa Shock. Uh, not having a go-to person after a long day, also seeing other what seem to be perfect, happy couples. Um, Becky Shelton, a friend of ours from Orlando, she lives in California now, been married about a year and a half. Uh, I think some have already touched on this, but the lie that your life doesn't really start as a woman until marriage and kids. That idea, obviously, the idea that I obviously wasn't complete or couldn't be happy until I found Reggie. Those were the comments at weddings, gatherings, etc., that frustrated me to no end. Uh, Chris Rice, I'm okay with being single. Yes, I get lonely. Yes, I do wish I had someone to share my day and to be with. However, the hardest thing about being single is the stigma that most society gives you for being single, especially after a certain age. If you're not married after a certain age, you're often judged for it and there, that there's something terribly wrong with you. Being single should not be a social leprosy. And you see a common theme there, and, and that's why I, I really like the, the post that my, my wife put on there. Uh, singleness is biblical, not a curse. The church does not embrace this or preach about it. I think Paul would be greatly disappointed. I, I think he would too. And, 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 and now to lighten the mood a little bit, here's what Andy Nielsen said. He found he struggled with singleness. All the fun, freedom, and financial independence was a real bummer, right? Okay. After all the other stuff, laugh is a good thing. Uh, next, uh, both marriage and singleness are good. Are good. Uh, Paul, who by the way was single, talks about singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 7. Here's what he says. I wish everyone were single just as I am, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. Now to the unmarried and the widow, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Then later on in the chapter, he says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. 
In the same way, a woman who's no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord in holy, in body, and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Now, now let's be honest. If Paul, this great leader in the church, were here today, many of us would think that he was a little odd. I mean, I could just hear the conversations over coffee, people thinking, why is he still single? Is it his looks? Are his standards too high? Is he socially awkward? You know, we would see him like we see maybe some people who on their Facebook, they'll put relationship status in relationship with Jesus. And you're like, yeah, that's because that's all he would take you, kind of people think, you know. Oh, there has to be something wrong with Paul if he's not married. In Maple Grove, that kind of thinking is not only problematic, but it also shows that we're reflecting in our minds more of what the world says about singleness than what the Word says about singleness. Like I said, we need to, we need to rethink singleness. It's not a curse. It should not be social leprosy. And notice, you know, according to the New Testament, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and what Jesus says in Matthew 19, both singleness and marriage are good. In Matthew 19, after answering the question the Pharisees had about marriage and divorce, and Jesus said, hey, marriage is supposed to be permanent, you know, his disciples come up to him and say, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, Jesus, if marriage is that tough, maybe it would be better to be single. And Jesus, I think, to their surprise, is like, yeah, you're right. Being single is a very good thing, but not everybody can pull it off. Here's what he says. Jesus answered, not everyone can accept this teaching, but God has made some able to accept it. There are different reasons why some men cannot marry. Some men are born without the ability to become fathers. Others were made that way later in life by other people. And some men have given up marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. But the person who can marry should accept this teaching about marriage. Again, like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Jesus saying that not only is it okay to be single, it's actually a good thing to be single. And listen, this idea that, that singleness is, is a good thing was an extremely radical concept for those who heard Jesus and Paul talk about it for the first time. I understand, in nearly all ancient cultures and all ancient religions, including Judaism, you know, high value was placed on marriage and family and having children. And to them, uh, there, was, there was no honor without family and, and no lasting legacy without having descendants. And in fact, in their eyes, without children, you essentially vanish when you died, no future. Therefore, long-term single adults were considered to be living a life that was far less than those who were married. And that is why what Jesus and Paul say about singleness was so radical, even for God's people. Now, question, in the Old Testament, how did the expansion of God's people take place? Primarily through having descendants, uh, by multiplying and filling the earth. 
And, and therefore, that's where that tension came in. We see in Genesis and other places, you know, where, where, where women like Hannah and Rachel and Sarah and their family friends as well, where they viewed not being able to have children as a curse. So singleness, the Old Testament, was for the most part unwanted and undesirable. But then Jesus, the perfect man, you know, it comes bursting onto the scene, ushering it in his kingdom. Uh, that was announced, by the way, by another single guy by the name of John the Baptist. And Paul, his greatest theologian, and they're all single for their entire lives. Uh, understand, through Paul and Jesus, Jesus and Paul, through their lives and teaching, for the, pretty much for the first time, hold up single adulthood as an acceptable way to live. Again, how did God's people expand the Old Testament? Primary through physical reproduction. How does God's kingdom expand in the New Testament? You know, through spiritual reproduction. Not through physical birth, but through spiritual birth, through being born again. See, we've gone from be fruitful and multiply to go and make disciples of all nations, bringing them into the family of God. You know, this week in my studies, I... I came across an awesome passage in Isaiah you know, that really shows a picture of this, of this shift, uh, of this shift from physical descendants being the main thing, uh, the spiritual descendants being the main thing. And it's in Isaiah chapter 53. It's that great chapter about Jesus, um, you know, uh, being crushed for our sins and uh, by his stripes, his wounds were, were healed from, the, uh, from sin. Here's what we read about Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 8. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without what? No descendants. That his life was cut short in midstream. They're gonna hit. No descendants. And, and, and look at verse 10. But it was the Lord's good will to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have what? He will have many descendants who enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And that this idea of, of, of the king of God of being about spiritual reproduction carries on into Isaiah 54, you know, uh, verses 1 and 2. I love this. Sing, O childless woman, you have never given birth. Break into loud and joyful song, O Jerusalem. You who've never been in labor, for the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband, says the Lord. Enlarge your house, build an addition, get some more square footage, finish the basement, build a room in the attic, put, put, a, put, a, uh, put a trampoline in the backyard so they get out their energy because a whole bunch more descendants and children are coming into your family. Yes, both singleness and marriage is good. Therefore, to exalt one over the other is wrong. To say that you're more holy and complete to be single is wrong and unbiblical. To say that you're more holy and complete if you're married is both wrong and unbiblical. Next, both marriage and singleness portray the gospel. Now, the last two weeks we've been talking about how, you know, how God designed marriage to be a picture of the gospel. How you know, in the way a husband is committed and loves his wife sacrificially, we see Christ's commitment and sacrificial love to, uh, to the church, you know, and, and, and how, you know, it's a picture of the gospel, how, how, and the way the, life, the wife submits and respects her husband is a picture of how the church submits to Christ. And what an awesome thing. We're married, you know, it's a picture of the gospel. And if you're single, you may have thought, hey, wait, wait a second. I would like my life to portray the gospel. 
Or you mean, just because I'm single, my life cannot be a picture of the gospel? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. But you know what? God, this is so awesome. God has designed singleness. Whether never married, divorced, or widowed, God has designed singleness to also be a picture of the gospel in a way that is different than in marriage, but yet a very powerful way, actually in two powerful ways. First, singleness pictures the Christian's ultimate identity in Christ. Now, the world and uninformed Christians would say that you need a husband or a wife to be complete, to be whole. Remember, that that's the prevailing view, right? Single people feel, right, in my Facebook, right? We're, we're, we're just not alive. We're, not, we're somehow uh, deficient, second class until we're married. But the gospel reminds us that this kind of thinking need to, needs to be rethought because it's simply not true. Because in Christ, regardless of marital status, we are fully and completely whole. Now understand, there is, a, there is a satisfaction, there is a sufficiency, there is a significance in Christ that far exceeds what any man or woman could ever bring to the table. And listen, through singleness, a Jesus follower proclaims a message to the watching world that, yeah, a husband and wife, they're awesome, but they're not essential. They're not necessary. You see, a single Jesus follower proclaims a message that vividly demonstrates in a way that marriage cannot, that Jesus really is enough. That Jesus is all that is necessary for satisfaction. That Jesus is all that is necessary for sufficiency, for significance. That Jesus is all that is necessary to be complete and to be whole. That is such awesome stuff. I mean, what a powerful picture. That single people, you know, it was so cool, you know, first service, you know, I, I wasn't sure, that, you know, if, if my 80-year-old widows thought I was going to be talking to them this morning. But, but I was. See, what an awesome picture uh, that those who've never been married, who are divorced, or have been widowed, uh, can portray to the world that, you know what, Jesus really is enough. And that in Jesus Christ, I have everything I need. That my cup is full to overflowing. Next, singleness pictures the Christian's eternal identification with the church. You may say, well, what about Genesis 2.18? It is not good for, for man to be alone. Well, that's true, but, but listen, the whole picture that God has designed in the church is to show us that in his kingdom, in his church, no man and no woman is ever alone. Uh, that we are family together, that we're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, that our, hear this, that our earthly relationships with each other in Christ are far more permanent than any physical relationship we have, even marriage. John Piper worded it this way. Relationships based on family are what? They're temporary. But relations based on Christ are what? They are eternal. And listen, th this, is not to, this is not to put down marriage. I mean, I believe in marriage. We, we've been lifting up the value in marriage the last two weeks. But it is to bring us back to reality. That only spiritual relationships in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ last forever. You see, even a 60, 75-year marriage here is not that long in light of eternity. 
and later forever. Remember, according to Jesus, you know, there, there is no marriage in heaven, at least not with each other. Luke 20, marriage is for people here on earth. For the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will what? Will neither marry nor be given in marriage. You see, in heaven, singleness will be applied to all of us. As all of us together wed Jesus Christ, the great Lamb of God. Okay, and, and so, so what singleness is, it, 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 it shows, you know, single people, whether divorced, widowed, or never married, they're saying, hey, you know what, I'm part of something bigger. I'm already part of a family. I'm not, I'm not alone. I already have community. I have relationships that, that go beyond time, that'll, that'll last longer than this earth. Jesus said, I assure you that everyone who's given up home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property. Okay, a quick promo. Um, it, it, because these forever relationships are such a big deal, you know, that's why we have something called life groups at Maple Grove, right? Where we develop these life groups, these, these groups, relationships that help us become what God wants us to be. And, and you'll see April 26th, the bulletin's wrong, you know, uh, at least this time. You know, it's, it says the 19th, but actually April 26th is the next group link where you can come get some free food. And free food's always good. And, you know, and, and maybe get plugged in with the group and meet some people that will help you in your journey with Christ. Uh, both marriage and singleness are a gift. Paul says, I wish everyone were single just as I am, but each one of you has your own gift from God. One this gift, another that gift. Which begs the question, who has this gift? And how do you know? I, I, I mean, some people delight in this gift of singleness. Others are frustrated by it. And now there are basically two schools of thought about this gift. You know, one is, is to see singleness as, like, as a gift, like a spiritual gift, that God specifically gives it to you. The other school of thought is that whatever state you find yourself in, married or single, you, you see it as a gift. And I tend to lean more towards that one. Because okay, I, I think Paul's ultimate point in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you know, is not about whether we are married or single. Instead, I think it's about whether or not we are trusting in God and living for God regardless of whether we're married or whether we're single. And whether we're saying, hey, you know what, I'm using this gift right now where I am. You know, and sometimes we may not want this gift, right? You know, it, you know, it may have been forced upon us when a loved one died. But we're saying, hey, no matter what, right now, you know, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to use the gift he's given me of marriage or singleness for his honor and for his glory. Check out what this uh, uh, lady, Margaret Clarkson, she's a 60-year-old missionary, single missionary. Here's what she wrote. Multitudes of single Christians in every age and circumstance have proved God's sufficiency in singleness. He's promised to meet our needs, and he honors his word. If we seek fulfillment in him, we'll find it. It may not be easy. Whoever said the Christian life was easy? After all, the badge of Christian discipleship was a cross. Why must I live my life alone? I don't know. I mean, she's honest. She said, I'm struggling with that. I don't know why. I, I don't know why this is what God has chosen for me right now. But Jesus is the Lord of my life. I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I accept my singleness from his hand. 
He could have ordered my life otherwise, but he has not chosen to do so. As his child, I trust his love and I trust his wisdom. Wow. What powerful, powerful words. Next, both singleness and marriage are for God's glory. You see, both have unique challenges, unique responsibilities, and unique rewards. However, the ultimate question is not whether we are married or single, but rather how we respond to each, how we glorify God in each. Bottom line, I really feel what God would like to say to us in this room today, you know, to those who are married, I think God wants to say, don't waste your marriage. It's a gift. Maximize it for my glory. And I think those in this room who are single, you know, either never married, divorced, or widowed, God would say, don't waste your singleness. Maximize it for my glory. Use it to, to be a picture, a portrait of the gospel, to show people that true satisfaction, fulfillment, and sufficiency is found in me and not in anything else. It's time to rethink singleness. Singleness is good. Singleness can be a portrait, a picture of God's glory. Singleness is a gift. And singleness can and does bring glory and honor to God. Get it? Good. That's some good stuff. Now for the second half of our conversation. Searching for your soulmate, which 75 million people in our country are doing right now. Right? And I say, hey, this is a great opportunity if you're single in this room, maybe to get some help to get it right. And for us who know single people, that would definitely include parents, right? Most parents know a few single people, right? I have three single kids right now. Some are way too young to get married, all right? But, you know, hey, hey, you know what? Here, we want to help you get it right. Because, because here's the truth. There's something worse than being single and wishing you were married. That's being married and wishing you were single. You know what? That's really not a punchline and a joke, is it? but a painful reality for too many people. Listen, if you're single and you want to get married, I want you, if you're single and you want to get married someday, whether you're widowed, divorced, or never married, I want you to know that what you do today matters. Why? Because one day your present will become your past, which has a way of showing up and messing up your future. And what I'm saying is that the way you choose right now to date and have relationships in your present, well, one day that's going to be your past. And that past will show up in your future and sometimes has a way of messing it up. Get it? And so what I want to do is look at just a few do's and don'ts of, 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 of how to search for your soulmate. And, and um, we're going to look at a guy you've heard of before. I'm sure you know of this guy. He was pretty lousy at finding the partner in life. His name was Samson. And and uh, he's mostly known for don'ts and do's, right? And he, he, he lived in a time where God's people were really messed up. They were living for themselves. And in fact, here's how Scripture describes it, right? In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in what? Their own eyes, right? If it feels good, do it, right? You have it your way. What, it sounds like, whoa, is that our times? And here's a cliff notes of his story. His, uh, his mom and dad, they tried for years to have children. They couldn't. Probably felt the burden, right? Why we have no descendants. What a bummer, right? Then God shows up. Hey, guess what? Your prayers have been heard. You're going to have a son. He's going to be a special son. 
and, and he's going he's to deliver God's people from Philistines. He's going to make a, a special vow to me, a Nazarite vow, to symbolize his commitment to me. And again, a, a few do's and don'ts from Samson, really found right, right in the beginning of his story in Judges chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman who caught his eye. When he turned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. Er, er, er. <laughs> His father and mother objected. Is there even one woman in our tribe or among Israelites you can marry? They asked. Why must you go to this pagan Philistine to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looked good to me. Okay. All right. All right. It, it, here's where we see the first don't. Okay. Don't go to the wrong places. Samson went down to Timnah. Timnah was about five miles south of where Samson lived. Uh, Samson lived in the hill country. Uh, Timnah was, was down in the valley. But when it says T Samson went down to Timnah, it wasn't talking really about you know, uh, the, his geographical direction he was traveling, but the spiritual direction he was traveling. Because God made it clear that they weren't supposed to marry people like the Philistines. Because they, they worship false gods, they, they, they worship the gods of fertility, they worship the god of sex, they had temple prostitutes, and, and the Philistine women were known for, for dressing in a provocative way. And Samson, a guy in his mid-twenties, he knew all of that, yet he still went down to Timnah. He still looks in the wrong place, and we don't know why. Uh, maybe he thought going down to Timnah would give him some more options. You know, maybe I was on Facebook, some ad popped up about, whoa, look what's going down in Timnah, I want to go there, it's spring break down there, Okay. Um, but, but he wanted to broaden his perspective, right? And, and, and I don't know, maybe he felt like this girl named Cindy felt who expressed the following to a reporter in a bar. She said, I hate this place. I hate having to wait in line to get in. I hate the way guys look you up and down when you walk in. And I hate the guys who look in the eye five minutes after meeting you and ask you, your place or mine. But I come here every Friday night holding out hope of meeting a few dateable men. And that's the frustration that many singles who want to be married feel because they started looking past the boundaries God has established to increase their opportunities. And yet God has placed the same boundaries on us. God has said that he does not want a believer to marry an unbeliever. You know, he wants believers to marry believers. And I think he, by believers, the, the Bible is assuming like real believers and not just I wear the t-shirt believer, Right? You know, I have a bumper sticker believer. You know, uh, we read in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I didn't grow up in a farm. When I think of yoke, I think of nice and runny yoke, right? I like my yoke runny, right? You know, across my piece of toast or something. But that's not the kind of yoke it's talking about. You know, you know they would hook, what, what, how they hook oxen together was with the yoke. And he's saying, you know what, it'd be nuts to take two strong oxen, put them in the field you want to plow, and they're both going in opposite directions. He says, it ain't going to work. You know, they're not going to plow the field. They're, they're, they're going to, well, maybe they wind up fighting each other, you know. You know and definitely the field's not going to get plowed. In the same way, what he's, he's making, you know what, you know, it, you, you got to marry people that are going in the same direction as you are. You know, and, and here's, and I believe that since dating, you know, most people don't get married before they date, at least today, right? You know, then if you shouldn't marry a non-believer, should you date a non-believer? Yeah, missionary Dating works sometimes, but rarely. And see, it's hard for someone to be your soulmate if they haven't given their soul to Jesus. 
It'd be like trying to build a house with two separate blueprints. Here's mine, here's yours, and we would never agree on foundational issues. Well, how are we going to raise our kids? Well, I want to do it this way. How are we going to handle our finances? I think we should do it this way. How, how should we resolve conflict? Uh, I think it's like this. Well, what should be the role of the church? It should be like this. Don't go to the wrong place. It's kind of like if you're wanting to start a healthy diet, don't eat every meal at McDonald's. I mean, we know what we get at McDonald's, right? Indigestion in 30 minutes, but hey, it's what we know it's coming. You know, it, it, may, it may satisfy an immediate hunger, but long-term health, it's not any good. It, it doesn't work. Next, don't look for the wrong things. Get her for me. She look them good to me. You know, it, it was totally physical attraction, right? He was infatuated by her appearance. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be an attraction, right? I mean, I'd be totally lying if I said the only thing that attracted, to me, attracted me to my wife, Laurie, was that she really loved God and was committed to the church. No, to me, she was then and is now the most beautiful lady on the face of this planet. Maybe the universe, right? Uh, but there needs to be more than that. Especially if you're talking about a lifetime partner. Bottom line, if you're a Jesus follower, one of the first questions you need to ask is, you know, do you go to church and are you faithful in your walk with God? And that's extremely important. You're talking about a life partner. It's not just do they look good, do, do they say the right things, but are they living out their faith? And, and here's where it's so hard in our culture. You know, in my studies, I, I, I learn stuff every week. You know, that how we do dating today, like, is pretty new. Like, the ter- concept, like, appeared, one thing I read is, like, around 1914 or something. You know, you know it, because in the past, it was like, you would, it was calling, right? Where, where you know, if you're watching Beverly Hillbillies, right, you know, they had the parlor, right? And someone would go call on Ellie Mae, and they would sit in the parlor, right? And, and they'd be with the family, they talk, people get to know each other. Well, dating is the concept. You take them out of that environment, and we go somewhere on dates and have fun and entertainment, right? And maybe we don't have the opportunity to get to really know the person. We just go out and have fun together, right? And, and, and so it's extremely important to not look for the wrong things. Samson was all caught up in, in physical appearance, you know, uh, passion and chemistry. And, and let's be honest. You can feel passion for someone you barely even know. It's like that famous song from my generation, you know. Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? <laughs> That's, if we can feel passion for somebody we met over the weekend, is that really the best criteria for life commitment? I don't think so. And here's the real danger. I'll tell you, here's the real danger you know, of people getting involved sexually too quick. You mistake that passion for love. And, and you're hooking up and you're having fun, right? Woo, this is great. I love being with you. Of course you do. Get your clothes on, right? You know, of course you do. You know, but then you get married and you find out, wait a second. I don't even know you. I don't know if I even like you anymore, right? That's another reason. Man, back off of that stuff. I think it'd be great to have some kind of checklist, right? You know, here's what I'm looking for. And I think a good checklist, at least part of it, should be what we find in Galatians chapter 5. You know, there's a person you're dating, demonstrate Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I mean, you go, go through the list. Well, do they demonstrate? Are they pretty much a joyful person? Or are they always depressed, in a bad mood, cranky? You know, are, are, are they a peace? Are they at peace? You know, are they always stressed out, always anxious? 
You know, are they able to really resolve conflict with me? We get in, we get in fights, but we have peace and patience we can work it out. What about goodness and kindness? I mean, how do they treat the person at the restaurant who serves you? How do they treat the person at the drive-thru who forgot to put in uh, the extra uh, Chick-fil-A dipping sauce, right? How do they treat that person? How about self-control? You know, do they control their tongue? Do they, do they control their, uh, their sex drive? See, we need to look past appearance and go a little bit deeper. And here's what happens when we're, when we're single, you know, never married, divorced, or widowed, and we want to get married. You know, we walk into a room, there's a bunch of people, right? And immediately, no, 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 no. We eliminate people based on surface things. And many times, we probably eliminate people that would really be good people and have good character, but they weren't that polished and they, they did not draw our attention. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. Don't compromise your walk with God. Samson did that. He made a commitment to God, and he just tanked it for a relationship. Just tanked it. Understand, when we are not honoring God in our most significant earthly relationship, it becomes very difficult to honor God in any other area. See, we like to compartmentalize our faith, right? Okay, I... Okay, God, I'm not going to be faithful right here because I'm kind of desperate. I don't like being alone. I'm going to do things that I know you say are wrong, but I'm going to do it because I'm kind of I'm desperate right now. Um, but over here, I'm going to follow you. And we think that somehow they're not going to connect. Listen, sin and disobedience is like dark ooze, and it just goes everywhere, right? It's going to seep everywhere. We can't say, I'll be faithful here, but I'm not going to be faithful here. It just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Bottom line, here's the all-important question. Does this person you're dating, if you're a Jesus follower, does he make your walk, does he or she make your walk with God better or worse? Do they make you hungry for God in his church or, or less hungry for God in his church? You know, does eating Doritos and Oreos and cheese puffs all the time make your health better or worse? If worse, put them back on the shelf. And some of you, you know what, God brought you today, so you know what, you need to put that sucker back on the shelf. That guy or that lady, because they're not helping you walk with God. They're actually causing you to hurt your walk with God, to do things that you know are wrong. You know, it's time to put the Dorito bag back on the shelf. And listen, most singles, the number one place where they compromise their walk with God is the area of sexual purity. And God has made it clear. Sex is reserved for a husband and a wife within the commitment of a marriage, period. Anything that doesn't fall under that umbrella is sin. Anything under that umbrella is five stars, thumbs up, right? You know, it's fine. It's good. It's awesome. You see, God in his great love for us, he's put up guardrails to protect us. And, and, and it may not be popular or very PC, you know, to talk about it. You know, and we can rationalize it. Well, we're going to get married. I mean, he gave me that wedding ring, you know, back in 1992, you know, I think he really will marry, so it's okay that we violate our sexual purity. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not. If we want what's best for our lives, then we're going to have to obey God even in this area of our purity. Honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy. Honor marriage. Let's read that together on three because it's such a fun verse to read. One, two, three. Honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy. 
between a husband and a wife. Last week I mentioned what, what Jace Robertson said. I thought it was really on point. He says, God's way of sex is the best. It is guilt-free, it is disease-free, and it is comparison-free. Again, the all-important question. Does this person make my walk with God better or worse? Uh, next, here's the do. The do's are going to rock quickly. Um, do change your approach. Have you ever heard of the right person myth? It goes like this. If, if, if I just marry the right person, Mr. Mrs. Right, everything will be all right. And understand, the myth is not that there's a right person out there. The myth is that if you find the right person, everything will just work out without any effort whatsoever. But the problem with that is this. You know, the other person is doing the exact same thing that you're doing. They're thinking, I don't have to be good at relationships because when I find the right person, they're going to be good at relationships. And everything will work out. And how do we know who the right person is? Chemistry and passion, right? That's how we know because they look good. They look polished. But you already said are not very good and reliable as a criteria. You see, a lot of times people don't really have marriage problems. They have two single people problems that got together and exploded in marriage. And that's why we need to change our approach. Shift from finding the right person to becoming the right person. You know, there's not a whole lot in God's blueprint about how to find the right person. But there is a whole lot about how to become the right kind of person. I mean, scriptures light up when we talk about that. And I think one of the great, one of the obvious places to look is that passage we hear at every wedding, right? Paul starts off talking about external things, that maybe the polished stuff, the stuff we see on the surface. If I speak in human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then he says, let's get down to the root of who we are, the people that God wants us to become. Love is patient. Become that kind of person. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Become that kind of person. Does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Become that kind of person. It is not easily angered. Become that kind of person. It keeps no record of wrongs. Become that kind of person. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And, and I, I, you know, I, I kind of like here, and it's not, it may not be exactly what it's saying, but I, I see an analogy here, you know, that, that, you know, we have this childish way of thinking, this, I find the right person, let me just find the right person. I think it's a, that's a childish way to think. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Don't go to the wrong place. Don't look for the wrong things, surface things that, that are going to draw you in and you'll find later, oh my gosh, who did I marry and why did I marry this person? Don't compromise your walk with God. You know, you know, don't allow someone to cause you to throw your faith away into things you believe in just so you can be with them. You know, if someone loves you, they won't ask you to do things that you don't want to do that you feel are against God. They just won't. They'll protect your heart. 
And guys, you need to do a better job protecting ladies' hearts out there. You know? You protect their hearts. If you love them, protect their hearts. You know? And, and, and do, you know, you know, take the right approach. Become the right person, not find the right person. And, and, and last, and, and, and this will actually be fairly quick, uh, believe it or not, do change your attitude. You see, having a wife and having children is not your salvation. Is not your salvation. Jesus Christ and Christ alone is your salvation. And sometimes we can think, come on, let's be real, right? You know, if I just can find that right person, that right marriage, everything's going to be good. I'm going I'm to get life out of you. We come to that person, and, and, and we take a big straw, we stick it in them, we suck everything out of them, right? And they once were a grape, and now they're a raisin. You know, they once were a plum, and now they're a prune, right? Because we said, you, give me life. I need life. You're my salvation. You're going to make me feel good about me. And it just doesn't work. Attitude, we do not look to spouses. We do not look to children for life. Jesus said it this way, in him, not in your marriage, though it can be a very good thing, believe me, I love it, I love my family, but in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, in him, in Christ alone is our salvation. We need to rethink singleness, and there's a bunch of single people in here. Widowed, divorced, never been married. And I want you to know that, that it's good. And, and that you can paint a picture of the gospel, man, that proclaims a message to the world that Christ is sufficient. And you can show the value of the family of God that lasts forever and ever and ever. And, and God can use your singleness for his glory. And that when we're trying to find a soulmate, you know, it's worth it. To, there's some do's and some don'ts. But always remember, guys, you know, that... that Man, you know, we've all done it, right? We've all stuck a straw in someone's life and just sucked it all out of them, right? And they've done it to us. But in Christ alone is our salvation. And Christ is sufficient. He's sufficient. He's sufficient. That's where you have true significance. That's where you have true satisfaction in Christ alone. Would you stand and pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we love you. And, and, and God, so many times, Lord, we, we all look to things other than you. And God, you've given us tremendous gifts of marriage and of singleness that we can use for your glory, that can paint a picture of your gospel. And, and, and God, I pray that you help every single person in here, that they, they realize that they're, they're not second class, Lord. You know, you know, they're not... That uncle we don't want to talk about. They're not lepers, Lord. They're not cursed. They're your children. You've given them a gift they can use for your glory. And God, I pray for those who are, are looking for a soulmate. They've never been married. They're divorced or they're widowed and they'd like to get married, God, that they just follow your plan, your blueprint, and they become the people that you want them to be. And God, that we all here just proclaim that, God, that though we get distracted and think we're going to find life in other things, that the day we declare at this moment that in Christ alone are we satisfied. In Christ alone is our identity and purpose and meaning in life. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.